Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter one. We're in week two of our Acts series. By the way, we, uh, we, got, these, um, we got these Acts scripture journal. I'll just wait till you guys are done talking. I, I Love you, pal. Hey, we got these really cool um, scripture journals, these Acts scripture journals. And they're, just, they're, they're these books that take you through the entire book of Acts. And then they have, um, they have space on the side there to take notes. So um, Scott ordered these, they were on back order, so we just got them in. So if you'd like to buy them, they're five bucks in the bookstore, and it would be a great way for you to um, just have something, you know, just a book full of notes um, by the time we get to the end of the series. Again, a short series, only 11 months. So, uh, you know, you'll just be able to write a, th- a few words um, in there. And uh, yeah, we don't do the short topical messages here at Substance. Typically, we go through books. This is a long one. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Um, paralysis is always a problem and a temptation for the church. So we have an enemy that wants us as the church to fall into paralysis. In other words, to freeze us out, to not move forward to not move back, to not move side to side, but just be stuck in a place where all we do is um, gather as a body, engage with one another as a body, grow fat heads with all the knowledge that we receive from the word, but we don't actually get out there and exercise. We don't actually move from the safe places that God has given us like here to gather together and actually let our faith become something that's active and sharp and that we use as what God has given us the means to be his witnesses uh, like we learned last week. So paralysis is something that the church is always in danger of entering into and then finding a very comfortable and a safe place and then just finding itself stopped. And that's something that we want to guard against. That's something that the early church, which is what the book of Acts is really about, um, after the life of Jesus, how he went about building the early church and the people, the unlikely people that he used Uh, to do that, to build his church with. The church that we have now is as the result of these men and women that we're going to be reading about over the next 11 months who were responsible for obeying God's word and then building the church. One of the things that they were in danger of as it is even kicking off, as we're going to see this morning, was paralysis, was just to say, okay, we don't know what to do, so we're going to do nothing. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning And what we're going to see is that when the church waits and when the church prays together with one accord, it can trust that Jesus is going to rebuild what is broken. He's going to replace what goes missing and he's going to make right what has been made wrong. Why? Well, because he is trustworthy, because he is the one that builds the church. He is the one that we are relying on to do this work. You ain't got to rely on me, right? You got to rely on me to be faithful, but ultimately God is the one who is faithful and he's the one that empowers faithful men and women to carry on that faithfulness. Now, there are some things that I don't trust myself to do, right? One of those things is home repairs. <laughs> like if my 
If my washer and dryer breaks, man, I'm telling you, we are either going to be wearing dirty clothes or we're going to have to break out that washboard and go all little house on the prairie, right? For as long as it takes for somebody to come in and fix it, right? I'm okay. I'm one of these weird dudes that's okay with waiting until someone can come in and fix it and take all my money, right? Why is that? Why is that, Big R? Why why are you okay with that? Well, because it's not an area that I possess understanding in. I can admit that freely to you all. I, I I don't know how to do some things. Very famous proverb, chapter three, verses five. This is what it says. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe this is something that was stamped on your wall that your mom like put on the kitchen wall. It said, I I think my mom did, that's why I say that. But the verse says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. So what this tells us is that the straightest path the church can be on in order to avoid paralysis is when it abandons self-trust. To abandon self-trust, though, here's what happens. It puts the church in a precarious position because to successfully abandon self-trust and not go into a state of paralysis requires four things. We just mentioned it a minute ago. Waiting, praying, trusting, and moving. And so in chapter one of the book of Acts, which we started last week, this is the position the disciples, the apostles, and everybody that surrounded them found themselves in. So before Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples, he said, you are going to be my witnesses. He said, you will be my witnesses. And you're going to do it locally. You're going to do it nationally. You're going to do it ethnically. It's not just for Jewish people. I'm going to expand this gospel to everybody who will receive it. And you're also going to do it globally. I'm going to send you out to the nations. But he didn't just send them out. He prepared them to be sent out. So we want to ask the question, how many of us see our lives that way? As God preparing us, as God positioning you, as God putting us in a place where you need to do some things in order to prepare. You need to wait on him. You need to acknowledge him. You need to trust in him. You need to start leaning on him instead of your own limited understanding. This is the place we find ourselves in with the disciples as we pick up in verse 12 after Jesus has ascended to heaven and says, hey, I need you to go back to Jerusalem and wait. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John And James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. That's Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the son of James. And then verse 14 says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Why don't we just stop right there? So a Sabbath day's journey Right? What that means is that they walked as far as Jewish tradition required before it was considered work because those were some of the laws that had been put into place 
from the Old Testament that Jewish people had to adhere to. And, and a lot of these laws were a little bit twisted and they were a little bit tweaked and they weren't exactly how God had originally laid them out. And that contributed to a lot of the problems back then about Jewish people thinking that by adhering to the law and keeping the law, that's what granted them peace with God and salvation. It wasn't, but a lot of these things still hung over. So the disciples, they traveled a day's journey, a Sabbath day's journey, which was enough to where it would be considered work. And then they entered what was called the upper room, which was probably, by the way, the same room that they had gathered in after Jesus had died when they were very fearful and they thought that their lives were in danger, which by the way, they probably still thought there was some of that stuff kind of hanging over, right? You can only imagine some of the anxiety and some of the fear and some of the worry that probably existed in the hearts of these disciples and these women and Mary and Jesus' brothers. Jesus had ascended and his instruction to them was to wait, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. That's what they were told. Jesus, what do you want us to do? Do you have a plan? Have you, have you written out like a strategic proposal for us? Like what's the next step? Like, did you send that, you know, in, you know, did you send that via USPS to the upper room so that when we get there, it's all going to be mapped out? Well, no, Jesus just said, go to Jerusalem and wait. It's interesting. If you can just pause right there and just think for a minute, it's interesting that Jesus told them to wait, isn't it? I mean, why didn't he say, guys, just head back to Jerusalem. Everything you need will be ready to go when you get there. Why does he make them wait? A writer named Betsy Childs Howard made this comment about waiting. She says, waiting exposes our idols and throws a wrench into our coping mechanisms. It brings us to the end of what we can control and forces us to cry out to God. And then she says, God doesn't waste our waiting he uses it to conform us to the image of his son. So that helps us, doesn't it? It helps us to understand that waiting is never arbitrary. It's never senseless, but it's ordained by God for the good of his followers, for the good of his sons and daughters. It's also never a waste of time to wait on the Lord. In fact, we only waste the blessing of waiting when we abandon it. Remember the children of Israel? Remember when Moses had to climb up the mountain to receive the commands and the instruction from the Lord? He was gone for a long time. So he's their leader. He, climb, he climbs up the mountain. He's speaking with God. And it was really just up to the Israelites to wait, to wait for that instruction, to be given to the man that God had chosen to give it to them so that he could come down and they could know how it was that they were to live then as his people. But they didn't wait. They got anxious. They got filled with worry. They started stirring. They said, how can we trust God if we have to wait for him? So what did they do? Well, that famous story, they built this golden calf. And they started worshiping this golden calf. Moses comes down. He's holding these two tablets. He sees what's going on. And you know the rest. He gets angry. He throws down the tablets because he saw that here was a people that didn't wait for God, that didn't pray in their waiting, that didn't trust what it was that God had laid out to them and had promised he was going 
to do. You are, as the book of Hebrews tells us, surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, it tells us, who had to wait before you had to wait. So we are surrounded by all these men and women in Scripture who had to wait. Abraham, remember Abraham? Abraham had to wait. He had to wait for a son that God had promised him. It took years. Dude was like 100 before that kid came, right? Joseph had to wait. Remember the story of Joseph sold into slavery? He had to wait to be freed from prison and slavery. Remember the children of Israel, how they had to wait after they being oppressed by the Egyptian government. They had to wait 400 years to be delivered from Egypt. Remember King David? He had to wait to become king. He was promised that he was going to become king. But the whole time, he had King Saul going after him, trying to take his life. He had to wait. He had to endure through that. The minute that you and I are saved by Jesus from our sins, we enter into a life of waiting. Have you ever thought about it like that? Because here's the thing. The world cannot wait. The world does not wait because the world has no assurance that their waiting will be worth anything in the end. So the world is constantly on a never-ending loop and an endless cycle of stirring and seeking temporary solutions. But we don't have to succumb to that. We have been given the faith to wait with hope. The book of Titus chapter 2 verse 11 tells us this. Listen, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, listen to all these words, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And it says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are it says, zealous for good works. Well, that verse says a lot. We don't have time to unpack everything in there. Here's the question, though, that I want to ask on the heels of that verse is, what will you devote yourself to in your waiting? What will you devote yourself to in your waiting? Immediate answers? And I got to find out what's going on. Just creature comforts? foolish fixes. I got to do something. I can't just sit here, Ronnie. I got to do something. Notice what the disciples and the women don't do in their waiting. Notice what they don't do. They don't freak out. They don't hurry. They don't bail. They don't run away. They don't make a decision just so it feels like they're doing something. What do they do? They pray. They pause. They get on their knees. They go before the Lord. They most likely were praying for the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised them. So we have to ask ourselves in our waiting, is that what we do? Is that what we're devoted 
too in our waiting. Because in fact, God always intends your waiting to drive you to pray. To come before the Lord and say, release me, O Lord, from the illusion of control that I have over my life. That's what's happening right now to these men and women of whom Jesus just ascended and now we're called to start the greatest church planning movement that the world has, will, will ever know because that's where it started and it's not gonna end. But verse 14 is important because it doesn't just say waiting and praying, but it says waiting and praying with one accord. Did you catch that? So they didn't simply wait but they devoted themselves, it says, to praying together. And it was an unlikely group, too. The disciples, the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers, who, by the way, didn't even believe in him before all of this took place. What is this model for us? Well, I think it models that the church is called to wait on God in prayer, but to live it out in community. To live it out in community, weighing and praying with one accord together is how we learn to believe that God is trustworthy. Waiting and praying on the Lord, waiting on the Lord, praying to the Lord in community. What is the effect of that for us? It means that we learn to believe that God is trustworthy. Let's pick up in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So he's laying out the story of how Judas betrayed Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field, Judas, with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Let's stop right there. Here's what's interesting as we get into verse 15. Peter stood up. Peter stood up and that's significant, right? Because Peter had recently stood down when he denied Jesus. But now he's emboldened. Now he's not the cowardly lion anymore. So we shouldn't forget for even a minute that the gospel doesn't have the power to transform people on the heels of their worst ever moments, right? To take faithless, chicken-hearted men and women like you and me and give us boldness to stand up and speak truth. That's the kind of work that God is most known for. So Peter stands and he reminds the brothers that the Spirit had actually spoken beforehand through the writings of David concerning Judas Iscariot, right? Judas Iscariot. And this helps us to understand that Judas was a disciple used by God before betraying God. 
and that the money Judas received and gave back to the priests was used to buy a field that he hung himself in and then fell to the ground, it said, and burst open. Let's get that memory out of our heads before we do donuts this morning, please. But here's what's important for us as we wait on the Lord, as we pray to him together as a community, and we believe in his trustworthiness. Here's what's helpful for us, is that Judas was part of God's plan of salvation. Judas was part of that plan, and this helps us to remember God's trustworthiness. When Jesus, listen, when Jesus called his disciples, he also called a man who would betray him. And what this means is that nothing falls outside of what God ordains. He uses wicked men to accomplish his will and fulfill his promises. And this should cause us to hope in God when we look at people in the world or in our life that are working for evil or who we feel have betrayed us or have hurt us personally. Remembering that although Jesus was betrayed by the hand of a wicked friend, God never removes his hand from his friends. Those who choose to remove themselves from the hand of God, well, that's a different story. They're susceptible to destruction from the hand of men. That was Judas. So here in the Psalms, we have this prophetic word from David concerning the man who would betray Jesus. Again, you're never going to meet anyone named Judas in your lifetime because for the last 2,000 years running, his name is up there with Adolf for least popular children's names, right? We know that. But what we see is that God had a particular plan for Judas that was part and parcel how he was going to unfold our salvation. So what Peter is doing here is he's drawing everyone back to the trustworthiness of God's word. There's people that are gathering this upper room with all the memories of Jesus's death with all the, just the, the wonderings about what's going to happen next to them, all the fear that they have about people that hated Jesus probably hate them as well. And so Peter's drawing them back and saying, remember, all of this was already written. This was already part of God's plan. And it's what we need drawing back to, right? It's what you need to be drawn back to all the time. Just when we think everything has gone as wrong as it can go, we realize that God has all the wrong turns under the sovereign control of his right hand. He's got this. The question is always, will we believe that God has it? Will we believe that God is trustworthy? Will we rely on and bank on his record? Will we stop being suspicious of him because we've been let down by others? Will you wait and pray Together, will you trust in his word? Will you believe God to keep his promises when it looks like everything around you is unraveling them, unthreading them? Because remember, there was a moment when it looked like Judas, there was a moment when it looked like Judas had won. There was a moment when it looked like everything that Judas had plotted and planned was gonna give him the victory. Maybe that's how it looks for you right now. The people in your life that have plotted and planned against you, whether it's now, whether it was in the past, it looks like maybe 
Maybe they did win. You ask, how will I ever rebound from this? But waiting and prayer and trusting is not paralysis. It's power. And it's power for us to do what the disciples did, which was move forward in faith. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. This is Peter talking. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So these brothers waited, these sisters waited, they prayed together. They trusted in God's word by looking back and reading and believing his promises. And then they moved forward in faith. Jesus chose 12 apostles to parallel the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was important, what Peter is saying here, that they chose a replacement for Judas and fulfill the prophecy that we just read about in the Psalms. So it was down to two, two men, Joseph and Barsabbas. Barsabbas, I don't know, also known as Matthias. Something interesting happens here that should help us when we are afraid to make a decision and move forward in faith. The disciples had two men. They were both qualified to become the 12th apostle, but they didn't know who. They didn't know. So they waited and they prayed. And then as an act of trusting God, they cast lots. What were lots? Well, they were these marked stones that they would place in a pot and then shake and then pour out, kind of like vintage Yahtzee is what it sounds like to me, right? So casting lots, it was a very specific method. And it was a method that was used all the way back into the Old Testament. And uh, men used this to determine God's will. Priests would use this as a way to determine God's will. Of course, it wouldn't be recommended today in case you're starting to get some bright ideas. We wouldn't recommend that you start using Yahtzee to, to determine God's will. Don't do that. Um, but here we see the hand of God choosing who he wants to choose now listen, follow me on this, all right? Choosing who he wants to choose through the responsibility of humans who make a prayerful decision while trusting God to be the one responsible for the ends and the means. And that kind of tweaks us a little bit, right? When we talk about God's sovereign control over everything, but then the fact that we still have some responsibility. Here's the thing that I want you to know. I don't know how that works. I know that we have responsibility, but we can also trust that God ultimately has everything under his control. David Platt, some of you guys maybe have heard of David. He wrote this book called Radical, um, really solid guy. But he gave this great example of, of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. He gave this great example at a, at a conference years ago that Melissa and I were at. And this is what he said. He said he was on his way to another conference and all of his connecting flights got canceled, which means he arrived at the conference like a day after it was over. So what he pointed out was that God indeed was sovereign in all of this. But who was responsible for all of this? Delta. 
So both of those things can be true. And we don't, we don't know how all of it works out. We don't know how God is sovereign over all of this, but at the same time, Delta is responsible. And if you've flown Delta like I have, they sure as heck are responsible for all of that. I've rarely made a Delta connecting flight. Um, that should tell us something about Delta. I don't know, I'm doing a Delta infomercial right now. So one of you guys works for Delta and you're gonna come up and defend them and I'm going to argue with you. Um, but what this means is that as we are waiting, as we are praying together, as we are believing God to be trustworthy because we remember by looking in his word, we also don't wanna fall into paralysis. We also want to move forward with faith, with wisdom, right? And there's a time to move forward in faith, even in our waiting, even in our praying. The best way that we know how to do that is together, is to get wisdom and to get counsel and to say, here are the options before me. I don't want to be hasty, but I want to know what you think about this, right? I want to talk to my wife. What do you think about this, Melissa? What do you think about this, Zach Watson? Hey, Mark Petrus, what do you think about this? Hey, Ashley Carr, what do you think about this? I want to get a collective wisdom from other people who are waiting and praying and believing alongside of me because I want to move forward in faith. So waiting, praying, trusting, and moving together with one accord, that's a really bad acronym. There's nothing I could do about that. The enemy wants the church to be hasty, to be panicked, to stir, to hopefully fall into gossip, to ultimately fall into a state of paralysis so that they never make a move. And maybe that's been the pattern of your life. So if you can look at these early church men and women and think they must have been so afraid, they must have been so confused, yet they waited, they prayed, they trusted, they made moves. They did it together with one accord. They did it in unity. Maybe that will help you if you find yourself like them in a season where you don't know what to do and everything has been taken away so that you have no option but to wait. And you also have the option to pray. And you've also been given the faith to believe that God is trustworthy. Some of you are waiting, but you're not praying, which means you're not trusting God and you're not moving forward in faith like you should. But none of you are supposed to do it alone. None of you were meant to wait alone, pray alone, trust alone, move alone. That's the pattern of the world. A Christian doesn't have any bootstraps. We don't pull anything up ourselves. Luke shows us the pattern of wisdom. So you think, well, maybe my pattern has been worldly, which is why I'm stressed like the world. Well, this is where we come in as a church. This is where community comes in. What's happening in that upper room, you guys? What's happening in that upper room? What's happening in that upper room is what happens in our church every Wednesday and Thursday, CGs. It's a community group. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. Together, they are waiting, praying, trusting God's word, encouraging one another to move forward with what God has next for them. 
Lamentations 3.25. We're almost done. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Romans 8, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience because Romans 12, we're able to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and being constant in prayer. So we ask the Lord, like the psalmist in Psalm 25, lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you, I will wait all the day long. Because in Philippians 1, we are told, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So as we are called to be his witnesses, let's remember what comes with that call. Because God is going to put you in a place like he's put me right now, which is I have to wait. I don't know what's going on. But in my waiting, I don't want to be stirring. I want to be praying. And in my praying, I don't want to do it alone. I want to do it with you. I want to do it with all you slobs. I love all you slobs, by the way. You're never going to find another pastor that's going to call his congregation slobs. It was very affectionate, I promise. I don't want to look at my wife right now. She's going to ask me 17 times why I said that. But I want to pray with you. I want to wait with you. I want to believe God's word together with you because that's the help I need. And I want to move forward in faith with you because you are the people, you are the beloved people that God has put me with. And I'm the slob that God has put you with. And you can pray for me about that. So let's do that together. Let's pray together right now. Lord, we thank you that you bring us to a place where we have to wait and we are called to pray and we are drawn back to believing in your trustworthiness so that we can move forward in faith together. Lord, let us learn from our early church brothers and sisters here who are facing things very similar to us and in a lot of ways far more extreme than we are. God, let's, would you help us remember that we don't wait without somebody who waited before us, which was Jesus. God, when we think about the garden and we think about the way that he waited and he prayed to you, Lord, and the ways in which there was an anguish there that we will never fully understand. And yet he trusted you. He trusted in your will. And he moved forward. And his moving forward brought him to the cross. And that's what moving forward looks like for us, Lord. It looks like a denial of self. Because we feel comfortable when we're stirring and we're coming up with our own ways of doing things, when we are not moving in wisdom, but we are trying to fix things 
in a state of chaos and faithlessness. Lord, would you guard us against that as a church? Would you more deeply implant your word, these words in us? Would we be able to look at our lives today and see the ways that you have called us to wait? You've brought us into seasons in our life where it is time for us to wait. It is time for us to pray together with one accord. It is time for us to be drawn back into believing your promises. And at the same time, moving forward with wisdom and with counsel and together in faith. Lord, would you grow us as a church that grows in those things? Thank you that you have. Thank you that you will. Thank you for loving us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.